So um, we are going to be in a, I, I tried to think of a good way to say this, but I really couldn't come up with it. We're going to be in a pretty random place in the Bible today. And so context is important no matter where you jump into the Bible, but especially a passage that's probably unfamiliar um, or we're not that familiar with. Context is super important. So before we start talking about the story, we need to talk about the events leading up to the story. So we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9 today, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And before we need to talk about at least the events of what happened in 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel opens up uh, with the nation of Israel asking God for a king. And now the ironic part of this story is that Israel already has a king. They have the perfect king. He's just not an earthly king. He's a heavenly king. But nonetheless, God says, all right, you want a king? I will give you a king. And God chooses a man named Saul. Saul starts off great, but very quickly he goes downhill. And so uh, another man is anointed king, and this man's name is David. Yes, David, David from the David and Goliath story, that man is anointed king. And the people automatically love him. He's growing in stature and favor, all the things. Only problem is, is that Saul hates David. Saul is still on the throne while David is anointed as king, and so they develop an interesting dynamic. David serves Saul so faithfully and so lovingly, and yet Saul tries to kill him on a couple of different accounts tries to kill him, hunts him down, all the things. So there's a lot of animosity there. Now, the other piece of this is that Saul has a son. Saul's son's name is Jonathan. Jonathan and David are best friends. They are the first bromance that has ever existed. They are boys. They love each other. So much so that David and Jonathan make a covenant. And in that covenant, David says, I will take care of your offspring as long as I live. And so after this, Saul's sin ultimately gets himself and his son killed, and then his house is more or less wiped out. David ascends to the throne. God gives him peace from his enemies, and that is where our story picks up in 2 Samuel. So our big highlights from there is that Saul and Jonathan are dead. David has made a covenant with Jonathan that says, I will take care of your offspring as long as I live, and David has peace from his enemies. So, Nolan, let's go through um, nine. Let's go one through four, if you don't mind. So, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he answered, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And so I wanna start by looking at the state. We'll go ahead and say his name. There's a reason we don't talk about this story often. And I really believe it's because nobody under 15 could probably even remember this dude's name, let alone remember it. His name's Mephibosheth. Say that with me. Exactly. That's my point. Nobody can say this guy's name. And so we don't talk about it often, but this is a beautiful picture. But before we start talking about the beauty of this picture, we need to talk about where Mephibosheth is in life. The first thing that we're, we notice is that he's a cripple. And so in today's day and age, we have done a lot for people with disabilities to try and assimilate and have them just live a normal, as normal of a life as possible in society. But 3,000 years ago in the ancient, ancient Near East, 
to be a cripple was more or less, if it wasn't a death sentence, it was more or less a sentence to a life of extreme poverty. Reminded of the Bartimaeus story. He's a blind beggar doing just that, begging on the side of the road or the pool of Bethsaida where um, Jesus goes and heals a paralytic and there's paralyzed people and cripples all around. If you weren't in a house of royalty or wealth, you were pretty bad off as a cripple. That's exactly what Mephibosheth is. We're told that he's crippled in both feet. The next thing we need to notice about his story is the fact that he's not even living in his own home. He is living off the charity of another man. And so there's a couple things that kind of come with the status of being a man in a, in a, uh, in a marriage, a father, a husband, all of that. Um, you know, in all likelihood, you're the one killing the bugs in the house. There, I don't know a whole lot of women who do that one. We didn't have a conversation in my house, but I found out I was the one who's supposed to take the trash out. Uh, mow the grass, take care of the cars. You know all the things that men are traditionally supposed to do. Well, you know, it's not necessarily cut in stone, but it's usually expected that as a man, you're going to be provider. Mephibosheth is in such a place that he can't, he can't even do that. He is living off the charity of another man. And so today, that would be really hard for a guy to stomach. Not being able to provide, not, not only for yourself, but if there's anybody else. Not being able to provide them would be very difficult. This culture that we're talking about today, the ancient Near East, 3,000 years ago, was more honor-bound than anything you could imagine today. And so for, see, can't even do it now, Mephibosheth, for Mephibosheth to be where he's at is the bottom of the bottom. It does not get a whole lot worse than this. This is pretty bad. And so what's interesting about his story is that it wasn't always like this. This is not how Mephibosheth grew up. If we want to look at um, 2 Samuel 4.4, we get a glimpse into what life was like for him. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He, Mephibosheth, was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was... Mephibosheth. So get that. He is the son of a prince, grandson of the king. He's walking on his bo- uh, both of his feet. As far as we know, otherwise than that, perfectly healthy. And then just like that, his life turns upside down. Mephibosheth goes from the highest you could probably be in Israel society to nothing, just in the blink of an eye. And so uh, when I think about this story, although the Bible is not primarily about us, we can get glimpses of ourselves in it. And I think this is a really good glimpse of what can happen to us as we go through life. We're all going to pick up scars along the way. And uh, the interesting thing is, is just like Mephibosheth, a lot of these scars, a lot of these bruises, a lot of these broken bones, especially the figurative ones, were nothing that we could do anything about. They weren't our fault or anything like that. But as we go through life, they happen. And as I was reading this story and thinking about how quickly Mephibosheth's life just took such a drastic turn, I was reminded of me, uh, my wife and Alyssa's story. And so um, just to paint a picture of what this pain is like and to probably relate to you a little bit, uh, my wife and I have been in the adoption process for on and off really for probably about two and a half years um, until this past winter. And so uh, I was lukewarm on it a lot, but really late last July, 
Um, I was like, all right, we need to do this. We need to go after it. And so we started getting pictures taken and home, home studies approved again and uh, sending things out. And so that was in last, uh, late July, early August. And Alyssa had been doing a ton of legwork and then November rolls around and out of nowhere, we get a call that says a birth mom in Arizona wants, uh, wants to place her baby with us. And Alyssa had even forgotten she submitted our profile to this place. And we're like, wow, this is crazy. And we have the conversation, and the conversation goes about as well as you can expect that conversation to go. We find out that she's doing a month. We find out that she's from um, a suburb in Arizona. And it's like, wow, this is, this is incredible. We start preparing even more, getting more things. Y'all start throwing us baby showers, just pouring love on us, friends, family, you name it. Everybody is so kind to us. We find out that uh, the town where the mom is from is where the pastor is from that made us so passionate about the pro-life movement and about adoption. And all these little pieces are lining up and it just seems like God's hand is on this, favor is on this, here it comes, here comes the blessing. The other side of this coin is that the next month was so hard. Anxiety and stress were everywhere you could look because this mom was not great at communication and neither was the lawyer that represented her in Arizona. And it got so bad by the due date that the lawyer in Arizona thought that the mom was playing us. She was just taking our money and gonna place the baby somewhere else who would give her more money. And so the due date comes and goes, and a few days later, she texts Alyssa late at night and says, hey, I think I'm going into labor. Well, about time, quite frankly. Let's do this. And so we get all our stuff. Alyssa has clothes for a month. I have clothes for a few weeks. We take the baby carrier, the diaper, all these things. I don't even know what they do. We get on the plane. The plane goes smooth. We don't lose anything. And we're 30 minutes from the hospital, and we're like, wow, this is about to happen. Five minutes from the hospital, our lawyer calls, and she's been incredible through the whole event. And what we think is gonna be, a, hey, we've got some paperwork to do. Congratulations, I'm so happy for you. Instead, she calls and says, your daughter was stillborn. Just like that. Everything that we had hoped for was just ripped away from us. A time just like Mephibosheth had. So much goodness, so much just ripped away. And the truth is, your story may not match up with mine, but you have gone through similar instances in your life. Or things just like that, your life has turned upside down. Whether it's betrayal, whether it's hatred, whether, I mean, you know, the list just goes on and on. Every single one of us has walked through life long enough to pick up something along the way, just like Mephibosheth. And I love Jesus' promises. There's one I, I really don't love, and it's the one where he said, you will have trouble. The truth is, in this life, you're gonna have trouble. And why that is, is because you and I have an enemy. And this enemy is actually in this story. And it's not, it's not something that just jumps out at you, but when you look at the action, you can see it pretty clearly. Mephibosheth's nurse is very similar to our enemy, to everyone's enemy. When trouble comes, nothing makes the enemy happier than carrying you away from the king. Absolutely nothing he wants more than to ruin your life, not only physically, but even probably more importantly, spiritually. He wants nothing more than to do that. And the thing about him is that he will claim it's for our best. He will tell you all the lies. He will peddle everything. 
and he's trying to get you to go to Lodibar. And that's where Mephibosheth is, pretty random place. Um, and as you read the Bible, you've got to pay attention to these names because the names are there for a reason. Nothing is random in the Bible. Lodibar means in Hebrew, land of barrenness. The enemy is trying to take you to the land of barrenness and he will do anything he can to get you there. Nothing is out of bounds for him. He wants you as far away from the king as possible. That's exactly what he wants. And it's times like these when there, you have the option between Jerusalem and Lodibar that remind me of the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in John 6, 66 through 68. So leading up to this, Jesus is teaching on the fact that to have fellowship with him, have fellowship with the Father, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. A bunch of his disciples hear this and they say, this is too hard of a teaching. Who can understand this? Who can live this? And they desert him. Jesus looks at Peter, one of his best friends, and says, are you gonna leave me too? Is this too hard? And Peter's response is, it has to be our response so often. To where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. It's not in anyone else. It is only there. Because time doesn't heal all wounds. I know that's an age-old adage, and I think the more I think about those, the more I disagree with most of them. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Time is amoral. That means it is neither good nor bad. Time is an agent. Time is something that can be used. How many of you know that time, more often than not, if we don't do anything, is just an avenue to make you more bitter, more hurt, more hateful, more sad, more depressed, all the things. Time in itself doesn't heal all wounds. Doing the right things over time, that's the key to healing all wounds. Believing the right things over time is the way to heal all wounds. What is the right thing to do? The right thing is to be with the king because from the king flows his goodness and mercy. From the king flows his love. All of the things of the beautiful aspects of life, those only come from one source. Those only come from the king. That is exactly what we see in the remainder of this Mephibosheth narrative. The king makes it so much better. Let's finish out this chapter. Then King David sent and brought Mephibosheth from the house of Machur, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servant shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. 
So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. And so there's another lens that we need to look at this story through. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10.1 that the, sh- the law, the Old Testament, was a shadow of the things to come. The Old Testament, every time you read the Old Testament, every time you hear about the Old Testament, the persons, places, things, and actions, you need to be asking yourself, how does this look forward to what Jesus would do on the cross? And that is exactly, this is one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in the Old Testament. Like I said earlier, Lodibar means the land of barrenness. Jerusalem, on the other hand, when you trace it all the way back to when it was just called Salem, Jerusalem means peace. Peace may not be something you necessarily think of when you think of the gospel, but let me, let me put it to you like this. Before you come to Christ, you are alienated and hostile in mind. God's wrath is still on you. Nothing about that scenario sounds very peaceful. But once you accept his son as your Lord and savior, you now have peace with the father. You are taken from a land of spiritual barrenness to a land of peace, peace with the father. The other aspect that is so similar to the gospel is that Mephibosheth can do absolutely nothing to improve his standing. As a cripple, as an alienated son from the king, there is nothing that he can do to make his circumstances better. He could never earn a seat at the king's table. Only the king's goodness is the reason that Mephibosheth gets a seat at that table. There is nothing he can do, just like there is nothing you and I can do to earn a seat at God's table. If we could earn it, guess what? Jesus never would have come. There would have been no point in him coming to earth. If you could earn it on your own, there would be no need for Jesus. Instead, the only reason that as Christians we get a seat at this table is God's goodness. Just like the only reason Mephibosheth ends up at the king's table is because of the king's goodness. What was his goodness? And this is, this for me, this is what makes the gospel the most beautiful thing on the planet. Mephibosheth didn't go looking for the king. Just like God uh, had to go look for Adam in the garden, Adam wasn't looking for God in the garden. Mephibosheth wasn't looking for David. The king went looking for Mephibosheth. That is the beauty of the gospel. You didn't come looking for him. Jesus says in John 6, 44, that only those come to me that the Father has drawn to me. If that's not the most beautiful love, I don't know what is. And the beauty of this story is that the king has come looking. If you're here today, there are two levels to look at this through, two lenses. Either you're a son and daughter, and maybe you have allowed yourself to go spend some time in Lodibar, the king has come looking. And if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not coincidence that you're here today. The king of glory has arranged this. Why? Because he has come looking for you. Not because you're perfect, not because you're great, but because he is. He's come looking for you because you are his beloved and he loves you. He loves you despite your flaws, despite your mistakes, despite all the things that you do wrong. He has the most beautiful and life-giving love that has, has existed, will exist, 
all the things is him. So the invitation today is if you've never been at the king's table before, come to the king's table. What's the king's table? The king's table is where the king is. What's at that table? It's the bread of life. It's the living water. It's intimacy with the Father. If you have never experienced intimacy with him, knowing that he loves you, it's the most beautiful thing that has ever existed. It's what life flows from. It's the living water that makes sure your soul will never thirst again. And so that's the invitation today. If you've been in Lodi Bar too long, it's time to come back to the king. Let's pray. God, I pray that, uh, I pray that lies would be broken off today, God. I pray that the pain that we came in with, you would speak to. You are the great physician. You are the great healer. I pray that you would bring us to that king's table, God. I pray that we would accept that invitation too. I pray that you would just uh, let your love flow through this place. Let us just stand in awe of your beauty and your magnificence today, God. Let us fall more in love with you today. Would your spirit just move through this time? And we need you, and we glorify you today, God. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our song. You're worthy of our love. Would you come and move? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I want to go ahead and invite um, our ministry teams down. Again, that invitation is for you. No matter where you're at in life, the invitation is for you. If you don't know how to get through what, um, what you've been through, that's fine. You don't need to. He does. And so come get prayer today and let God just pour his love out on you.